I just think right now, women, especially in business, this is the year of women. I just know that. Life begins at 150 grand a year. Life gets better at 250, and life gets real good at 500. Nobody can tell me differently on it. When you start teaching something, I feel like that's when you start to master the actual art of it. You and I, when we publish a book, we can go toe-to-toe with any of the New York trade publishers, any of the big-time authors, and we get to compete in that marketplace and then let the market decide whether our stuff is good. People forget sometimes as an entrepreneur, the whole damn point of entrepreneurship is to make money. And now here is The Win with your hostess, serial entrepreneur, marketeer, and chief sexy boss. Have you ever wanted to stop the nine to five grind and start your own company? Do you want to have more control of your income and your time? Then now is that moment to start and grow a successful business. As a female entrepreneur, I have succeeded. I have bit the dust. I have bounced back to growth and prosperity. But this would not have been possible without first taking the leap and owning my own business. But I didn't do it alone. I hired my first business coach 13 years ago. And now I help small businesses, solo practitioners, and professionals double their income and triple their time off. So let me help you too. My gift to you today is a free one-on-one strategy session. So go to coachwithheather.com, coachwithheather.com. And let me help you double your income and triple your time off. Hey, it's Heather. Is your digestion feeling off? Are you often hungry even though you're eating enough and taking supplements? Are you struggling to burn off that last bit of stubborn fat that will not go away no matter how hard you diet or exercise? I guess I'm talking about myself here. See, it might be your gut. It was mine. That's why I am so excited to announce that P3OM, the Navy SEAL of probiotics, is now available at energywithheather.com. Look, tens of thousands of real people, including myself, has used P3OM to manage constipation, bloating, gas, acid reflux, abdominal pain, and much more. Look, as you'll learn when you go to energywithheather.com, P3OM uses unique and patent strand that has been proven in lab tests to deliver the right bacteria to your gut. So your body has what it needs to let go of all that fat. So look, what are you waiting for? Go to energywithheather.com. That's energywithheather.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Like a Boss, where we help you rise to the top be an influencer and who you are. I'm super excited to be introducing you to someone that I've had deep conversations with. Um, this, this interview, this show is really for you ladies and men, but really for you ladies. And this is a going to be a very personal interview about myself. I'm going to be opening up a lot about my own life, things I don't talk about normally publicly. And I reached out to my own Facebook group, my own personal group and asked for someone like Karen to come on and talk about this very uh, personal topic. So I'm going to introduce you to Karen. So first of all, she's across the world. She's in Australia. Karen, are you there? Yeah, good morning. Good morning. It's afternoon. Here. <laughs> what time is it there? 
6 a.m. 6 a.m. Okay, that's super early. So thanks for getting your makeup on. <laughs> really, I appreciate that. So let me introduce you to who Karen Battersby is. First of all, she's in Australia, across the world. Karen describes herself as a truth seeker and a truth teller. Her warm, authentic nature and direct communication styles combine to ensure that her clients have both direction and support. Karen is a passionate advocate of personal development growth, and living life authentically. She sees her own development not just as a way to live, um, but her belief that in life is a learning journey, but also to bring new tools to her clients. And Karen specializes in working with women rebuilding their lives after leaving toxic and narcissistic relationships and is soon to release her first book on the topic, Fix Your Man Picker. <laughs> I needed you about four years ago. That's people say that all the time Heather why didn't I read that book 10 years ago <laughs> right right okay so let me tell this audience a little bit um I reached out to my group um on Facebook and said hey I want anybody anybody here have an expert in narcissism and I'll be sharing a little bit of story about that today through the process and the reason is because I'm definitely not an expert in narcissism I've gone through a relationship recently broke up with one been very heartful uh, heartache relationship um with a narcissist uh, but i wanted to bring you on karen today to kind of share with everybody some tips and tricks but more more or less signs that they may be getting into a relationship with a narcissist um mm-hmm. so let's start off there you have a pdf about you know a pdf about seven seven um signs that you may or may not be getting into a relationship with a narcissist, but let's start with your background. I mean, I kind of read your bio, but let's start with your background. How did, how did you get here? So I actually work with men who um, use violence and obviously they're overrepresented amongst those are narcissists and people who feel very entitled and other cluster B studied psychology and um, have had a real fascination with personality disorders And I've been in my own relationship with a narcissist. So a lot of the stuff that I talk about and bring to to my clients is not just the clinical theoretical background, but the experience of having lived through those types of experiences as well. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's, you know, a relationship with a narcissist is like no other relationship, is it? It's very hard to describe. Um, you know, you and I've had some pretty intimate conversations and about it. I honestly can tell you five years ago, if I had met you and had this interview, it would have been like, ah, yeah, yeah, whatever. That sounds like someone with a big ego, you know, um, after going through a relationship with a narcissist and having a very heartbreaking, um, and expensive (laughs) on all fronts, break up with one it's been um, a whole nother world I'm, I'm a different person after mm-hmm. the breakup and you and I've talked about that personally um, I think that one of the reasons I want to bring you on is kind of sharing my own personal story but also to really understand that it's a personality disorder and I want you to kind of touch on that that mm-hmm. even when you're dealing with and you've mentioned this before and I want you to kind of go down this road because I think it's fascinating how you deal with who work sorry deal with excuse me work with men who are use violence, sometimes domestic violence, um, in their relationships, and yet still, and yet still, they don't, from what I understand, tell me, don't take responsibility. Um, I think that's 
sad, but it, it, I love your word, fascinating. It's a better view. It's a more of a curiosity view versus just like a, a make wrong, you know? Uh, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to ask questions. Narcissism. Is it usually in our society today, is it, is it more men than women? It is slightly more men than women. So 6% of the population um, are diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. But having said that, it falls on a spectrum. So there are probably hundreds of thousands of other people that wouldn't actually qualify for a diagnosis of NPD but have lots of strong traits because you have to have something like seven um, of these qualifying criteria, if you like, in order to get a diagnosis. Um, but there'd be sort of, you know, hundreds of thousands of other people who, you know, might have four or five of them but wouldn't actually qualify for a diagnosis. So it is, you know, hugely represented out there in the population. Uh, and, yes, there are slightly more men than women who... Um, but it does manifest in different ways too. So when we think about narcissism, we tend to think, you know, grandiosity. But there's also what we call covert narcissism, and women will often be sort of more involved in that kind of end of the spectrum, which are the, you know, the coercion and the manipulation tactics. Heather, I've just lost sound. I don't know what's happened, but I can't hear you. Yeah, that was me. Um, okay, so let's start with men, just just because, and this is not against men or any at all, I just want to kind of pick a segment for women specifically to know when they are potentially getting a sign, signs with getting a relationship with a narcissist. Because I will say on the other side of, of a relationship with a narcissist, um, it's devastating on such a core level um, mm -hmm. that it's hard to even describe. And I remember our very first interview or very first talk on the phone, I said, I'm technically, what did I say? I'm, I'm YouTube narcissist certified. Because <laughs> I've spent like, you know, 50 hours or whatever, listening to therapists around the world doing their YouTube videos on narcissism. So I'm like, I'm certified in YouTube narcissism certification. Um, but I really don't know that nuances. So let's start there. How is it a personality disorder and is it born or created? Well, that's one of those huge, you know, nature or nurture questions, Heather. The reality is what they have found is that, you know, there is something that's inherent genetically there in people who have these personality disorders. And then often there's, you know, a trigger event as far as trauma in childhood or that kind of thing. So, you know, there's a huge proportion of it that is just inherent personality trait. But having said that, there's also the environmental stuff. So it's neither and both. Mm, it's neither mm. and both. Thanks. That, that was great, Doc. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Now, what, so from what I've read, again, my certification of YouTube, um, is that narcissism usually has, it's more created from the environment, less than born. So they talked about, you know, talked about like a psycho, basically is born or sociopath is created from the environment. It's almost like a response to their environment growing up. Do you find specifically with men that there's some issue with their mother specifically? I'm kind of barking down a tree, but I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. They nearly all come from some kind of trauma background. So they've had trauma in their own childhood. That's the reality. They were yeah. victims once upon a time too. Yeah, they were victims too. So of course the, the victim usually becomes the um, perpetrator, right? Okay, so let's go down that road. You, you deal specifically with men who have used some type of violence. In your experience of working with those men, one, my first question as a woman, can they be fixed? <laughs> That's my first question. But number two, uh, do 
you know, do they see they did anything wrong? You know, this falls on a spectrum. If you're talking about people who have narcissistic personality disorder, no, they don't take responsibility for their actions generally. So they are highly unlikely to see what they've done as being wrong and very, very unlikely to change. Uh, not everybody who uses violence is going to be a narcissist. Right. Um, and so that end of the spectrum we would have more success with. But somebody who is uh, diagnosed as a narcissist, has a narcissistic personality disorder, very, very unlikely to change and rarely will they take responsibility for the violence. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the, the signs. We were going to go down seven, but we don't have time for seven. So let's pick three, top three mm-hmm. signs that someone knows they're about they're dating a narcissist. Let's just pick one. What's the first one? Right. So entitlement is the, the first one that I would say. It's, it's quite obvious, but it can be very um, in lots of different sort of subtle ways. So they literally believe that the world revolves around them. They believe that they are special. And so why shouldn't they have preferential treatment? Why shouldn't they be at the centre of your universe? Why shouldn't you... Um, subjugate all of your own needs, wants, desires in order to further their life or their career or what they want or, you know, meeting all of their needs in the relationship. So that sense of entitlement, um, they, they, that means that they'll then exploit people as well. Um, you know, I deserve to have the things that I want and the ends, you know, the end justifies the means. And so that sense of entitlement permeates everything that they do. I want to talk about this for just a second. Um, like I said, five years ago, if I had this conversation with you, I would have been like, okay, someone who's an ego, that's every millennial. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, there's something I'm going to add to this just a little bit from my experience. So when the world entitlement, like I said, that sounds like someone with high self-confidence in my experience with this last breakup, there was literally like, I don't know how to say it. If, if with, when our, we were in a relationship, if I even thought, if he thought that I even thought that someone he doesn't, that was stupid. His words were that person's stupid. You can't think of any, you know, whatever they say is stupid. They're stupid. If I even thought I liked that person or what they said, I'm now stupid. You know, it got to that. It was like everyone in his world thought he was the king. And if anyone questioned that specifically, cause he happened to be a doctor, then it was like, you're stupid. How dare you question me? It was like, no, you're just stupid. You're just dumb. You're just dumb. You're dumb to even think or question me. It got, I didn't know how much I was sucked into that until aftermath of looking at my life going, wow, I got to a point. I was shutting off so many people in my life, coaches and friends and counselors. Like if I even, and then I would look to him unsubconsciously, like, did he, like or agree with that person. If he did, then I would listen to him. If he didn't, then I would literally shut them out. I didn't even see myself doing it until looking back, right? Hindsight 2020, because I'm a pretty smart and intelligent person. And I had all these people in my life. They were like, you weren't listening to me at all. And you weren't, what, what's your deal? Why are you not open? And I've had to learn to be open again. I've had to learn to be open to other people's views because I even noticed even now I would say, oh, I, they're stupid. I don't believe in them. And I thought to myself, is that me talking? Is that really what I think? Or was that his view? And I just projected that. I took that on. Um, I think it even goes beyond just entitlement. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like, a, you're stupid, AKA whoever they are. You're stupid for even thinking the other person is right or wrong. Or right. right. 
So what what you're really talking about there is you're challenging their self-image and there's ah. this false sense of self, right? They don't they don't have a true identity the way you and I might have a true identity. They have a fake self or a fake identity. And when you challenge that, then they they just they can't. They disassociate from it. So they'll either uh, simply discredit or deny, which is what you're describing there. No, yeah, that's how it is. Um, because remember, they're in complete self-denial about who they are. Uh, they can't face any of the worst qualities of themselves. They just don't see them. And right. so that, that self-denial has to go really, really deep. And so anything at all that contradicts that image that they have of themselves, so someone who disagrees with them, for instance, just has to be completely discredited and, um, and denied. Anything that doesn't fit with their their view of themselves or their world view. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about there is, a, is is that sort of you know they live in it's magical thinking. They live in a fantasy world where they are God. You know they are centre. The entitlement is a is a very is, I guess you would say oh well all the millennials are entitled yeah sure but this is once you've encountered it you understand it's not. We're not talking about, you know, people being slightly, you know, the word narcissistic has kind of been um, hijacked. Everybody, all millennials are narcissistic. No, they're not. When you actually meet somebody who falls on this spectrum, you begin to understand what narcissism truly is and, and what entitlement really looks like. And we're not just talking about, you know, I think I'm special and I've been wrapped in cotton wool. We're talking on steroids. Yeah, it's on steroids. My view around it, my, my way that I've had to put it in my head to understand it it's and I have my view is 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 thinking like a kingdom, you know, like a, a castle, and there's like a moat around the castle, and he's the he or she the narcissist, the king, and anybody he allows in there in that little castle, they're okay, but the moment someone in the castle questions them on anything or likes someone outside of the castle, they're like booted, and then it creates this fear of everyone else in the castle, like oh, I don't want to be booted out. So they all like cling back. It like creates a more like, oh, oh, he must be right. Look, they're gone. You know, they've been booted out of the castle. Now they're on the other side of the moat. They can't get back in. He must be right. I mean, it's such a, um, and when we had a, when this particular person and I obviously broke up, I lost my world, all of it done because they doubled down on the king and the castle. And so I got booted out of the moat, but I lost every single person that I had ever talked to the last three or four years, you know, and it becomes this, if you believe her or if you listen to her, AKA the person that got kicked out, you're an idiot. You know, you're stupid. You're an idiot. You're wrong. Or you're going to get kicked out. So it creates this, not only that they are right, but a fear across everyone else. There's like a different level of it. Cause I think in our society today, we come across, I think as everyone's like, if you're, if you're egocentric, people don't like that. I think there's another level of narcissists. They have this ability to get people to say, to believe in their stuff, whatever their stuff is. And if anyone questions that, they literally get kicked out. And so that tribe mentality like kicks in, mm. you know, they don't want to be kicked out of the tribe or something, you know? Yeah. And it's you've interesting. Absolutely. Does that Sorry. make sense? Yeah, no, you've, that's a great analogy and you've absolutely captured there exactly the way that it is. They can be very, very charismatic and charming. Oh! And you are agreeing with their view of the world and their self-identity, then you're valuable to them. But the minute you're not agreeing to that, you are of no value and the discard is complete. Yeah, you are like shut out on the other side of the moat, not allowed to back into the castle. 
at all. And you're booted from their life. Like it is so hardcore. It's a black or white thing. It is not a gray type of deal at all. Um, I think it's, 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 that doesn't even, not even title. There's gotta be another word for that. It's like, you're either in my life and you're believing everything I say and drinking my Kool-Aid or you are not, you're the enemy. You know, it's like, that's the only choices. Um, they call that splitting. They call that splitting. So, you know, you're either, um, you know, you're idolized and you're the best and most wonderful person in the world, or I completely hate you and you're dead to me. So that's splitting, you know, and yeah, yes. that's another practice. You're, you're in or you're out. There's no halfway. There's no halfway. Right. And, um, so just to be, you know, transparent, um, a little, I had to be careful. Uh, my, my, my father is narcissist. So of course I date, uh, and almost marry one. Right. So that's no shock to anyone here listening, potentially if they understand that, uh, I was used to that behavior. Okay. Um, and, um, as of currently we're talking, my father, I, I crossed the moat on him too. And he refuses to speak to me quote, I'm dead to him. And, uh, the, uh, he said that to me when I looked at him and told him I loved him. And his response was, you're dead to me. It was like, you know, one of those things where I, just questioning him or trying to engage with him in, in a more of authentic way. And of course the response is you're, you know, you're on the other side of the moat. And then everyone that's in his castle, as I call it, his little castle won't talk to me. Right. They will not reach out. They've all blocked me. Not because they have a particular view of me or any kind of relationship with me. It's because they listen to whatever he says is right. None of them have reached out to me and said, well, I don't care what he thinks. Like, I want to have a relationship with you, sister, brother, you know, stepmom. It's more like, well, he says you're horrible, so you must be horrible. Yeah. And, you know, you've touched on something really important there, Heather, that I just love to latch hold of for a second, if you don't yeah. mind. That comment about having had a parent who was a narcissist, um, the reality is a lot of people who get into relationships with one have that familial background. So this is one of the things I cover in my book because, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like one of the prerequisites because it does feel familiar. You're used to having this man or this person who's at the orbit, the centre of the universe in the family, and everybody has just gravitated or orbited around that individual. Um, and so, yeah, it does. It creates that sense of familiarity and we seek it out in our partners as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so there's no surprise. Like I said, I'm, I'm certified YouTube videos. <laughs> that, that was my first go-to. I'm going to go type in you, what's a narcissist on YouTube and like 50 hours later, forget Netflix. I got YouTube. Um, okay. Let's go down the second, second sign. Let's go down mm. another sign. What's another sign? So they don't take responsibility. So, yeah, um, you know, they rarely apologize. And even if they do apologize, it's not a genuine apology. It's no. something along the lines of, I'm sorry, you feel that way. <laughs> you think about that. That's not an apology or at you all. You made me do it. Right, right. You so they triggered just, me. You made yeah. me do that to you. Um, mm. you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have said that or I wouldn't have said that back. Yep, you've got it. That's exactly how it goes. There's always a reason. It's never their fault. And even if they can't think of something right in the moment, maybe they've done something that's just so devastatingly, you know, um, lacking in empathy that they, you know, they can't think of a reason at the moment. They'll circle back over the next few weeks or months with a story that then makes it your fault. 
So yeah. always putting responsibility back on you or external circumstances, but mostly the person who's in intimate relationships with them. Never their fault. Nothing. Never their fault. Yeah. So um, again, I have, you know, intimate relationship with one past and, uh, um, and a father and wow, you talk about, especially my father, once I figured that one out and saw the behavior in the relationship, the, um, one, there was never an apology. If there was a, a type of apology, I kind of crave that he's apologizing, but he really never did because it always came back to, well, you should have never said this then I would have never X or done that. And me being a very empathetic person and always wanting to get better, I would always look at, well, what did I say that really caused you to be upset like that? You know, that's where I went, right? I automatically went to, well, what did I say? How can I say that better so that you can feel more loving or whatever, which falls right into their trap, really, because at the end of the day, it's like, no, I said what I said. I'm sorry you felt that way. And no, it wasn't my fault that you responded to that. You're responsible for your reactions. But as an empathetic person and as someone who's constantly looking to go to the next level, it's one of those, like, I just fell for that trap of just like, well, I can see how you feel that way. And so let me, let me reorganize myself for you, which fell into the trap of who am I, which is when I got out of the relationship, I was in this big, like, who the hell am I? Right. We talked about that. The identity break, because it was like, I didn't even know who I was. I had put myself in such a, such a pretzel for making him happy. All right. So that I didn't even know when I got out of the relationship, who the pretzel was, I didn't even know what part was actually me and what part was actually, I put myself in that position for him. I, I just couldn't see it. So yeah look you know and the best type of control is coercive control right because that's where you amend your own behavior to meet my needs right so then the argument is well i didn't ask you to do that you've changed you know you did that you chose that so coercive control um is incredibly powerful and you've talked about you know what makes us ideal i guess i'm going to use the word victims or survivors whatever word you want to use why are we ideal for narcissists why are we an ideal source of this supply for them well because we do look at our own behavior and we do go okay how can i be better i don't want to trigger this person or you know i always look to my own behavior first right right and that's that's powerful for them because it means you're going to take responsibility all the time right Right. Well, yeah. Cause I, cause I was, was taught in my personal development that when you, we own our responsibility, we're more powerful. Well, that's true. As long as the other person's healthy too, and they're being personal and responsible, not when you're taking responsibility for everything and everyone and every problem, including yeah. theirs, you know, recently, um, I guess I'd be careful, but, um, it was in a, in a situation with the other person recently, um, and I found it fascinating in the, it was in a, a deposition on how to say that. Um, and I found it fascinating that there were some challenges that the lawyers were going through and asking him questions and he was throwing everyone under the bus, everyone, even though it was his business or whatever, he was even throwing his own lawyer under the bus. I was just like, Wow he's not responsible for anything. You know, he was just like, Oh, that's not my fault. Oh, I didn't do that. Oh, it's not my fault. Oh, that must, that must have been my assistant. That must have been somebody else. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. It was just so ridiculous. And then, and the 
fascinating part of that particular situation I got to be in with that person is luckily I didn't have to interact with them. So I kind of was looking like a fishbowl, you know, it's kind of like in a fishbowl where he was talking and I got to just like observe, like an observer. And I saw how much he was like, nothing is his fault. Nothing, 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 nothing. And the other thing that was fascinating was like, he didn't remember anything. It was either not his fault or I don't remember. Not his fault or I don't remember. The only thing he did remember extremely well is when <laughs> they asked about his credentials, like his, his, uh, his education. And he just knew every single certification, every, you know, like his resume was a thousand pages long with a thousand different certifications with a thousand different kinds of, you know, whatever masters and masters of masters and masters of masters. And he knew that, you know, but he's everything else and nothing's his fault. <laughs> just like, yeah, no, you're totally, you're totally right. I mean, that selective memory is uh, one of the tools that they use. Yeah, I don't remember. In other words, it might be incriminating or, you know, that might paint me in a light that I'm not willing to be seen in. So I just conveniently don't remember. Yeah. yeah. And it's a lie. It's a lie. They're very untruthful people. <laughs> well, let's talk about women who are in relationships like this. Um, is there a how do I say this in a female way? Is there a way to fix them to stay in the relationship or is it just like, can we fix a narcissist? Yeah. Why would you want to? Well, I'm not, I'm just saying, I mean, at no, this point sorry. in my life, there's no way. However, I maybe someone's thinking that question and listening. Yeah. And look, honestly, I get asked that question all the time. And, and here's the thing, right? Uh, they would want, they would have to first acknowledge that they've got a problem. And there's, there's your first issue. Narcissists, their self image doesn't allow them to admit that they've got a problem. We've just right. explained that everything is always somebody else's fault. So how are you going to change that deeply embedded pattern of thinking so that they take responsibility? Because if they don't take responsibility, they can't change, right? We all know that. Right. So the first issue. Can they change? Technically, you know, from a scientific perspective, could they? Yes, everybody could change. Our personality is somewhat malleable. But the reality is the way the narcissist thinks and their deeply embedded, um, you know, that self-injury that they have, uh, it's very, very unlikely that they're actually ever going to admit they've even got a problem, which would then lead them to actually go and get assistance in order to change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they'll pretend they're changing in order to keep their supply. They don't want you jumping the moat right now, right? Mm -hmm. So they'll pretend they're changing. So what I would say is, well, you think about somebody who wants to, uh, you know, do something, somebody who's actually committed to something in their lives, you know, yeah. say a marathon. How do you tell? Well, they research marathons, they practice every day, they put themselves in the environment, um, you know, they ask for feedback on their performance. That's what real commitment looks like, right? So if you are seeing that level of commitment from a narcissist, perhaps they really are willing to change. But if you're not seeing that level of commitment, so they might go, all right, yeah, we'll go along to counselling, but, you know, three sessions now, look, I'm done. We don't have a problem, we're fine. Um, or three sessions and, you know, or two sessions and I, oh, I can't relate to this counsellor, you know, um, and if the counsellor challenges them and actually holds a mirror up to their behaviour, they'll be out after one session. So they rarely put themselves in an environment where anything challenges that self-image, that self-belief, because it's so fragile. The so, chances of actually engaging meaningfully in counselling is very, very slim. 
so I, um, the um, ex and I went to counseling before Mm we um, ended it for months. And looking back, a lot of it was about, from his view, he's there to fix me. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Heard that so many times. Heather. Right. And I'm, I'm like, to support my partner who needs help. <laughs> yeah. She needs help. She's got issues. You know, she obviously needs this. I, I don't need this. I'm fine. I got my life. You know, I got my stuff going on. I'm happy. I'm successful. She's not happy. I don't know. Her problem is fix her. I'm here. I'm here to be here to make sure you fix her. You know what I mean? It was like that. And looking back, I didn't see that because I was trying to really communicate in a relationship or whatever. Uh, I had no idea that it was a supply thing. And then at the, near the end, when I started actually, um, the counselor was started working with me to help me kind of have a life outside of him. But that's, that was how she took me. Right. So she was sort of like, well, let's, let's move you because we're in business together. Let's move you out and let's focus on what do you want? What do you want to create? What do you with or without this person? And the moment that started happening, you can kind of see where this was going. He was getting anxiety and more upset and doubling down. And, uh, that's when, um, in the middle of that move, basically of me looking at, yeah, what do I want? Maybe I, you know, don't want to do this business with him and all this stuff. That's when he what I call trying to suck me back. And he, he proposed in the middle of that. <laughs> so in the middle of me, like, Oh, what do I want to do with my life? And he was like, Oh, propose and we'll get married. You know, I was like, wait a minute, wait, 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 what? You know? So it was an interesting kind of way to like bring me back into the fold. And so then now I was like, Oh, we're getting married. Now you have to be in the business. Now you have to do this, 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 you didn't really fix her. You know, now let's focus on fixing her inside of my context called what it looks like to be married to me. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, so basically what he's done there is love bombing, right? He's gone, how do I win this person? How do I bring them back into my my circle of influence? I know what I'll do. I'll promise a commitment. I'll future fake, which is one of the words we use, you know, that future faking. So, yeah, absolutely. It wasn't future fake. I didn't know it at the time, but it was about six months after the engagement where I started to do things like, because I believe in once you get engaged, you go get married. Like you don't wait around for that. You don't have like these 10, 10 year engagements. Like if you're going to do this, you, you do it. Um, and so I started to say, well, where are we going to get married? And I started throwing out different places and let's start and get this on the books in a year from now or nine months from now. And he won no talk with it. No, mm-hmm. not going to no. Oh, you know, whatever he said, but it was definitely like, we're not talking about that. So there was no date. There was no creation. It was kind of like, you should be happy. I proposed, you know, and it was kind of like, well, the proposals, the whole point of that is a commitment and creation of a new life. So and it was interesting now looking back. I mean, at the time I just said, well, he's not ready to make a date. That's no big deal. Right. Um, but now looking back, it was a future fake. It was definitely a future fake. There was literally no intention, no intention. Like I went to the engagement ring place to get the, that's a whole other story with the, um, the uh, ring sized. I can go there. And I of course went right into like, well, I, you know, I didn't pick the ring out. So I would like to have a piece that's, that I picked out for the engagement and then the other part for the wedding. And it was like, no, that's all you get. You know, no, that's like, wait a minute. I want to have a say because to him, it was all fake. It was just, it was just for me to stick around in the business. It had nothing to do with actually wanting to create a commitment, you know, which is fascinating. 
to me. But uh, what's the third thing? So the third one is um, lack of empathy, yeah. and, a, and a lot of a lot of the you know stuff that you read about narcissists will talk about this lack of empathy. They just are unable to put themselves into your shoes, into your emotions, into how you might be feeling, and that leads to a complete lack of remorse. So when they treat you badly, they literally cannot empathise with how that might have made you feel or why you might be hurt. Um, which is why you then get these insincere apologies because they just cannot grasp what they've done that has been so, you know, detrimental or devastating to you. Um, when someone has no empathy, obviously their behaviours are going to be sort of well outside of what you would call normal. So you might find yourself coaching this person about, you know, how to behave like a normal human being. So if you ever find yourself doing that, that should be a really big red flag. How to be like a normal human being. Well, I can't speak to that one. He didn't do that one very well. He didn't do that one to me. What he did do though, which near the end, I started to see it. I didn't see it. Um, and I shared this with you privately and, and I, my father did the same thing. But again, when you're in, sometimes with that, that old, that old analogy, when you put the frog in the pot of water and the water is like room temperature, and then you slowly heat it up, the, the frog doesn't know it's in a pot of boiling water. That's kind of the same premise when you're in a relationship with narcissist, you have no idea it's kind of going on because you're kind of in the water, you know? So, um, this is my experience. So what was happening was I noticed when we were around people, he was nice to me. I call it, you know, he showed, this is my fiance girlfriend. He was like decent to me, but the moment, and I mean the moment we were alone, meaning there was no human beings around he switched and it started to become even the switch became at the beginning it became small. I didn't see it. And then the switch became bigger, you know, like to a point where I would test it. I would literally be like, he's being mean to me and nothing's changed other than a person left. Right. And then I would like go out of my way to, I don't care who it was. It could have been like the garbage man. It didn't matter. I thought I'd get around somebody and try to have the same conversation and he would be like nice again. And then I'd remove the person and he would be mean and it would be the same conversation. And I was like, wow, the moment someone's around that could be seen his behavior, he's nice. The moment no one's around, I'm the antichrist or whatever he has in his head, but yet I'm his, you know, relationship his source can you talk about that what is that called or what is that why, why do they do that well it's impression management right because they don't want other people to see who they truly are they don't want that evilness inside them being observed by other people so that impression management is i want the world to believe that i'm successful that I've got a successful relationship, that my children are wonderful, that I'm my business is doing well or I'm excelling in my career and other people think I'm wonderful and I've got all these accolades, right? So impression management, remembering again that their self-identity is false and they create a completely false world around them. So that impression management, they've got to have those other people um, validating their experience, validating who they are. If they behaved the way you just described, that being mean, in front of everybody, it wouldn't take long for people to be calling them out and going, oh, my God, this person's a jerk, right? And so that impression management um, 
is it does two things. One, it manages how other people think and believe and it enables them to be able to get what we call flying monkeys, okay? So people that they recruit to be on their team or, as you put it, in their castle yeah. um, on this side of the moat, their side of the moat. But the other thing that it does is it invalidates you. So you're suddenly going, I must be the bad person. I must be the one with the problem because, you know, he's fine around everybody else. So it's part of that invalidation process as well and that coercive control of you. These people literally destroy who you are at your core. They eat away. It's like a bacteria or a cancer. They literally eat away at your self-identity because they have none themselves. That, again, if you had this conversation with me five years ago, being a strong, independent woman like myself, I would probably say, oh, that sounds like they would now or never happen to me. Um, but it did. And I think it's because I'm strong, independent that it happened to me. And I want you to talk about that. Let's talk about a little bit, if you don't mind, I know we're going a little over, but the source like that. I, when I think of a source that they, I'm the source or the narcissist needs a source. I literally have a visual of a, um, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like they just suck out of it and then they're done and they just like explode they throw you away like a bad battery. You know what I mean? Like what, what is that? Why do they need a source? What is that mean? What does that mean? Well, because they don't have a self identity. They don't, you know, they, during that formative period where they, uh, an individual creates this identity of themselves, uh-huh. right? there's an interrupt. There's a problem there and they don't actually ever uh, create this strong sense of self identity. So that source you actually are giving that person their identity. So you are giving them their energy. I love the power socket analogy. I always use um, leech. It's like, you know, how a leech latches on and sucks blood, but the minute they're full, the minute they've got what they want, they drop off. It's the same kind of analogy. Um, so the reality is the more sources that they can have, and this might be parents, could be siblings, it could be intimate partners, it could be in the workplace, business partners, it could be, followers or groupies, I like to call them. They like to have these groupies, right? And each of those people who are feeding or making me believe the story that I'm creating about my identity. So it can be their children even. You know, my children love me. I must be a good person. Um, You know, my team at work think that I'm a great leader, so I must be a great leader. So anybody who feeds that sense of identity is going to be of value to them. Anybody who starts to question that or not agree with the identity that they're trying to create or who says, hang on, your actions and your words are contradicting each other, they are not aligned, or, you know, actually I don't agree with what you're saying there, you know, that that's just your version of it, but that's not necessarily the truth and it's only one version then you'll be discarded because you're no longer a valuable source to them. So it's about, I guess, building blocks or or think like Lego blocks. Each little Lego block helps me to create my sense of identity, my sense of self, who I am in the world. And I want this little piece over here from my team that make me feel like a good leader. And I want this little piece over here who's my intimate partner who makes me feel like a wonderful lover and partner. And I want this little piece over here from my children who idolise me and say that I'm a great dad. So they build this identity from all these little pieces that they take from other people. 
it's really true. It's like they compartmentalize their fan base. <laughs> right. Right. You know, yeah, it's really true. And um, like I said, now looking back and learning what I've learned and working with therapists and counselors and reading and certified YouTube videos, what I've learned is that um, they're like in a box, you know, this person needs to give me this, this person gives me that, this person gives me that, or this group organization gives me that. I think a big one is the smart thing, especially for men where, um, you know, I've got the certifications, I've got the degrees, I've got the, this, that my father is definitely like that. Um, and then he's also extremely competitive. My father's very competitive in tennis. So he kind of uses that as his way to, uh, kind of like get idolized, right. Himself, um, and his kids and things like that. But it is to me, what I find fascinating and want to wrap it up, but what I find fascinating on the no empathy side, right. Is like, technically, and I know I'm sharing probably too much and oh well, right. But technically my father has four kids, technically, right. He had two marriages, four children. I'm the first round as he calls it, the first mistake he calls it. So we don't exist. Me and my sister in his world literally do not exist. How, how, like from why, you know, it's always fa- like, and of course people, what happens is people go, y'all must've done something wrong. No, we've, we've done nothing wrong. You know, we never try to shoot him or kill him or I wanted to in my head, you know, or stole from him or any of that. Like we've done nothing. So it's just an interesting, he's just point. He's, he's made it a point that we are dead. And then everyone in his life, including his current wife and his two other children, we're dead to them too. Not necessarily because they have anything against us but because they had to choose, they had to choose which country to be in and they couldn't, they're not allowed to be in both. And I think that's part of the thing with a narcissist. They had this ability of like, you have to be in my world. And if you're not in my world and you pick their world, like a gang member, if you're in the, if you're friends with anybody in that gang, you're out, you know? And that's not how life is. Like I, I technically have to have a half brother and half sister and a stepmother. And I don't, they won't talk. Like they will not talk to me and my sister. We're dead to them. I don't want to do anything to them. So, but that's the ability of a narcissist to literally create this separation, you know, and a separation so vast that I think after years and years and maybe funerals of like, why are we not talking? I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I have no idea. I think it's interesting. That's that empathy. Cause at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I think a normal person would be like, Hey, I don't have a relationship with this person. I choose not to have a relationship with this person. But at the end of the day, you, other people in my family get to choose what you want in life. And you get to choose if you want a relationship with them or not. Like you get to choose. You don't have to have my same belief system. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I, it's very sad. Um, where can people find you though? And say, Hey, I'm interested in learning more. Yeah. So um, www.liminal, L-I-M-I-N-I-L coaching.com.au because I'm in Australia. <laughs> Say it and, one more time just in case someone didn't catch yeah. it. So it's liminal, liminalcoaching.com.au. Okay, great. And we'll have that in the show notes. So as we wrap up here, Karen, can you just give us some, I don't know, tips, tricks? <laughs> yeah. So I guess one of the the really important things is, you know, 
if you see those red flags, um, don't argue with yourself. That's that one of the big things that we do see is that people often do see the red flags, but they explain them away They make excuses for them. So you really need to just stand back and say, I'm going to give this person the time to show me who they are. And that's because they will reveal who they are. So don't, yeah. you know, don't get into a relationship quickly. The other thing that you can do that's a really, really quick test, the smiling no. Because narcissists don't like uh, conflict at all, say no early in the relationship and test it. So if they respect your boundaries and they respect your no, that's great. But a narcissist won't. They'll actually start to try the emotional manipulation um, or the coercion or whatever it is to get you to go along with what they want because there is only what they want, right? So the smiling no. Issue it early in a relationship. Smiling no. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm looking back in my head. Did I ever do that? I did um, say no a couple, obviously a couple times at the beginning and it was, it was, it was met with not like a yelling and screaming, but like, okay, you can say no, but like, you're stupid. Why would you say no? That's stupid. You know what I mean? Like that. It was more like that. Like, well, you're stupid then. You, and like, there's a visceral reaction to that. I'm like, why am I stupid? Just because. And then you start to question, well, maybe I'm stupid. For me, I was like, oh, I'm questioning tell me the wrong choice, you know? Uh, and then I would go, well, tell me, of course my, and I would say, well, tell me why your answer is yes. And then they would say whatever. And I would be like, oh, I can see that point of view. Cause that's me. I can see that point of view, but instead of doubling down and using it as a test of like, no, I would say, okay, I can see that. I'll go with that view. Cause I wasn't looking at it as a test. I think looking back, if I was going on a date now or something, I would use it as a test to see how he would, or he or she would, um, you know, question that kind of kind of thing how they push push back again. yeah how they push back um i do find that let me ask you a question let me wrap it up do you find that narcissism runs in families type of thing it yeah, runs absolutely and this is one of the reasons why we say that there is a genetic trait because it does run in families we never ever see one narcissist alone so when when i see it i can always then trace it back into previous generations a parent a grandparent siblings aunts uncles it'll be scattered right throughout the family tree Never yeah i can <laughs> yeah i can see that um i'm looking back in my family as well as his um and my father's and there's definitely signs of um ancestral you know like that uh, one more question <laughs> sorry <laughs> Was um, like okay. One more question: Do you find that many nurses have some kind of addictive behavior with with alcohol or abuse on some level, yeah. or is that there is, there is absolutely often a comorbidity that okay. runs with, with? So comorbidity means you know occurs with right. So we do often see addictive behaviors. Um, it might be alcohol. It could be gambling. It could be sex. Could be um, drugs. So yes, very very frequently. Okay. Interesting. Okay. And like, one more question. Okay. Thank you so much. Say your website one more time, Karen. Liminalcoaching.com.au. And don't forget, Fix Your Man Picker is available for pre-sale now. Oh, it is. Is it on Amazon? Not yet. It won't be on Amazon, but you can get it through my website right now. Oh, okay, great. It will, it will be on Amazon eventually. <laughs> By the way, I want to say it in a, in a Texan way. <laughs> Fix Your Picker. Fix Your, your wait. Man Picker. <laughs> 
<laughs> fix your man picker. Sorry, that sounds really bad sexual. So I'm trying to make it not sexual. <laughs> fix your man picker, which basically means, ladies, you know, how you pick and choose men, right? So, um, yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone, absolutely. this is Heather Havenwood. Check me out at heatherhavenwood.com. And thank you for listening to Like a Boss. I hope that this interview you like, not like, comment, not comment. Please, please reach out to me and let me know what you think of this. Um, if you think that someone in your life is potentially in maybe um, domestic abuse of some sort, or maybe needs help, or maybe just needs who's at the end of a narcissistic relationship really needs help, I highly suggest you reach out to Karen or just a local professional and professional help because um, it's not something you can do alone. So I highly suggest you reach out to a professional counselor in your local area or Karen. All right, this is Heather Havenwood, heatherhavenwood.com. Hey, it's Heather. Is your digestion feeling off? Are you often hungry even though you're eating enough and taking supplements? Are you struggling to burn off that last bit of stubborn fat that will not go away no matter how hard you diet or exercise? I guess I'm talking about myself here. See, it might be your gut. It was mine. That's why I am so excited to announce that P3OM, the Navy SEAL of probiotics, is now available at energywithheather.com. Look, Tens of thousands of real people, including myself, has used P3OM to manage constipation, bloating, gas, acid reflux, abdominal pain, and much more. Look, as you'll learn when you go to energywithheather.com, P3OM uses unique and patent strand that has been proven in lab tests to deliver the right bacteria to your gut. So your body has what it needs to let go of all that fat. So look, what are you waiting for? Go to energywithheather.com. That's energywithheather.com. Have you ever wanted to stop the nine to five grind and start your own company? Do you want to have more control of your income and your time? Then now is that moment to start and grow a successful business. As a female entrepreneur, I have succeeded. I have bit the dust. I have bounced back to growth and prosperity, but this would not have been possible without first taking the leap and owning my own business. But I didn't do it alone. I hired my first business coach 13 years ago, and now I help small businesses, solo practitioners, and professionals double their income and triple their time off. So let me help you too. My gift to you today is a free one-on-one strategy session. So go to coachwithheather.com coachwithheather.com and let me help you double your income and triple your time off. Thank you for listening to The Win with Heather Havenwood. Interested in coaching with Heather? Go to heatherhavenwood.com and sign up for a business discovery consultation. Here is your free gift for listening. Get three audio chapters of Heather's book, Sexy Boss, How Women Empowerment is Changing the Rulebook, when you text the word sexy to 7200. Again, text the word sexy, that is S-E-X-Y, to 7200, and receive your three audiobook chapters. Number is good only in North America. This is a sexy boss rap. This podcast is a copyright of Havenwood Worldwide, LLC.